Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brayman, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced business owner, expert, and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast, where we help guide business owners the exit they deserve. Today, we have Ian Smith, founder and managing director of Transition Advisory Partners, an investment banking firm based in Vancouver, Canada. TAP, as they're called, help baby boomer entrepreneurs plan and execute a transition out of their business. Ian, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Opposite ends of the country. Yes, you're in Vancouver. I'm in Florida. Our weather's quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is our uh, our geography. So you're an investment banker based in Vancouver, which is fascinating because a lot of people don't realize while the border between Canada and the U.S. matters some, it doesn't matter that much. So, so just to help people understand is you help people sell Canadian companies, but you can help people buy companies in the United States, correct? Yes, absolutely. Most of our work is, is admittedly, is more sell side, but we certainly, we've looked at businesses and helped clients buy businesses in the States as well. So what is your market? I mean, investment bankers have different markets of price ranges. What is your market that you guys focus on? Our typical client is revenues. um, Well, revenues are not so much, but uh, enterprise value would be 20 million to a hundred million, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. Those tend to be Roughly $2 million of earnings, or we, we would use maybe EBITDA, but um, roughly that that level, $2 million and up, $2 million to $10, 12000000 million of EBITDA. Okay. And now, is there cer- are there certain industries that you tend to see come your way or you like to focus on? Yeah, we're, we're fairly agnostic in terms of industries, but we have sort of large buckets, if you will. Distribution for one, branded distribution, unbranded or distribution for other people's products and manufacturing. Those sort of industrial type businesses are kind of our bread and butter. But we've we've been involved. I used to say we don't do technology businesses, but we've we sold a, a couple of technology businesses last year. And we've been involved in the software space a little bit as well, which is is a burgeoning business up here in Vancouver. Yeah, you're not far from uh, Seattle, which obviously Microsoft is in that area. So yeah. there's I assume there's plenty of tech up there. Yeah. Tech and, and movie-type technology as well, CGI as well. Oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's neat. So talk about the differences. We talked a little bit offline about this, but the differences in selling a 5 to $20 million company versus a 20 to $100 million company because people, investment bankers will kind of focus either sub-20, 5 to 20, or 20-plus, 20 and then you've got people who are under 5, and that's three unique categories and so talk about the differences in in those types of transactions. Yeah. Well, the 
right off the bat, the processes tend to be quite different because uh, for a small business, you're dealing with a different audience. So you want to hit a much broader range of maybe high net worth individuals or people that are looking to buy an income stream for themselves or maybe for their family. You know, you may have a high net worth individual that's looking to buy a business for their kids. We don't really focus on that, uh, that side of the business. So where we focus a little bit larger and we like that space because when you get to that size, as your you know your viewers would know, you probably have a controller or a CFO in the business. You've got other people that can help in the process itself. In the smaller deals, you're dealing with the buyer directly. You may not have the same quality of information, and it is a fundamentally different process. You know, I would say it's actually easier in my mind, anyway, in my experience to sell a $50 million business than it is a $5 million business. It really is interesting you say that because in a in a past life, many, many years ago, uh, right out of college, I, I was a real estate agent. And, and we used to say that, you know, and this was, you know, 20 plus years ago, we used to say selling an 80 or or $100,000 house was more challenging or managing the transaction Mm-hmm. It was more challenging than a half a million or $750,000 house. Yeah. It's interesting. Maybe it's, there's lots of theories on why, but I, I totally understand what you're talking about. Yeah. You're also dealing with a different audience of buyers. So a more sophisticated buyer universe. Um, so they understand the process. In the smaller deals, the buyers may not understand the process either. So you're dealing with two two parties that are maybe not as well-versed in the the principles of getting a deal done. So yeah, makes it even more more difficult. So when you take a company to market, what are you seeing that are the biggest challenges or the biggest misconceptions that sellers have? I think one fundamental thing is business owners will look at the the market in general and say, "Oh, well, I understand my business is worth X number of times earnings," and they feel that because they heard that in the market, that's that applies to them. But there's a big variance of values for seemingly similar companies. And there's lots of reasons for that. Quality of financial information, quality of management, et cetera. And we could have a whole different discussion on that. But there's fundamental reasons why business owners won't get what they think they're going to get. They may get more, they may get less. But there's lots of things that will drive that value. Well, I would assume it's typically less because in my experience, everyone thinks their asset is worth more than it actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's your house that you're selling whether it's your business or whatever it is. And what I find interesting is everything's based off EBITDA, but what I've yet to find is this two people calculate EBITDA the same. So it's really very, uh, very yeah. opaque in what you're actually trying to calculate here. Right. And, you know, EBITDA is a, used as a proxy for cash flow. And it's, if you look at EBITDA and actual cash flow, free cash flow, they tend to be fundamentally different. Right. And now, I would assume that, you know, when you have a business $20 million or less, it's very easy. You may not have a CFO, you might, but it's very easy to run a lot of personal expenses through a business. But when you have a 20 to $100 million business, it's a lot more challenging to do that. Uh, is that your experience as well? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'd hate to disagree with you, Roth. I see some crazy things in that twenty to hundred million dollar range as well. I've seen <laughs> boats and an airplane. I've seen college tuition and season tickets to hockey games and all sorts of things that may not necessarily 
be yeah. regular business expenses. Well, you have to strip that out when you calculate the EBITDA, that's for sure. Yes. Yep. And we've seen normalized, we call them normalizations to EBITDA of upwards of a million dollars a year in some companies. Well, uh, I don't blame the business owner. You just got to be aware that it doesn't really, it's not really ideal for selling your business. You make sure to clean the books up ahead of time. Right. Yeah. We're There's always a bit of an arm wrestle uh, that is uh, centered around normalizations. So what is the typical timeline, the market today? I mean, it's, you know, 2022 when we record this, what's the timeline? If I have a $40 million company and I want to engage the market, what is the typical transaction time? You know, the fastest, if you press the, the go button today and said, look, we're ready to sell the business. It could be as short as four to six months, and that would be really fast. And it could be a year or more. And more often than not, it's the seller, it's our client side that isn't as prepared as they think they are for the due diligence process. So the financial reporting, gathering all the information, even things like updating minute books and director's resolutions and contracts and whatnot are kind of left to the last minute quite often. And so that takes time to get through. And most sellers, especially that larger size where they've built a business and they haven't bought and sold a business in the past, they grossly underestimate, no matter what you tell them, they grossly underestimate the invasiveness of the due diligence process. And how much consulting do you do with your sellers on maximization of sales price through setting up? Because I mean, many times a seller will come to you and they'll say, hey, I want to sell my business. And and of course, we've all heard the stories where, well, how soon do you want to sell it? Uh, By Friday. And the reality is to optimize your sale price, it's going to take three to five years of real planning, Mm -hmm. which most people don't have the patience for. Few people actually are proactive enough to do it on the front end. But when you see somebody and you're like, hey, I can get you 20 million today, but if we adjust a few things over the next 24 to 36 months, we could probably get you 30 million. How often do you see that? And how often are you walking through that with them? That's a great question. I would love to see it more often, quite frankly. And one of the reasons I called my firm TAP when I set up uh, the firm six or seven years ago was that I believe there was a lot of value in that run-up to a transition. More often, when I was working with a large firm, we would tend to respond to an RFP, a request for a proposal for somebody that wants to sell. And if you win, you're going to market like the next week, you're building the information memorandum. And once you do that, once you go to market, the value is somewhat locked in. If you've got a good quality investment bank, they're going to get the best multiple possible by running a competitive process. But you're leaving value on the table, as you suggested, in not having things ready for for sale. So, you know, I would prefer clients to have two years to really get things in order. If they have three to five, boy, they can do, they can increase that multiple quite dramatically. So if you had 10 transactions, how many of those 10 transactions, if they would have taken the time to implement some strategies that you would recommend that would increase their multiple, how many people could increase the sales price if they would be more patient and take your advice on making some fundamental uh, adjustments to their business? You know what? Virtually all of them. In that 20 to $100 million space, for example, very few business owners have audited financial statements for private companies. It's not a requirement. So they'll have a compiled statements or we call them notice to reader statements or a reviewed statement. That's sort of the, the de minimis that you need to run a business. Buyers, sophisticated buyers of those size of businesses would expect that their businesses are always going to be audited. 
And that quality of information really drives value. And it, you know, it improves, even if it improves the multiple by half of one turn, it makes sense for investing in an audit each year for two, three, five years before a sale uh, for, for the size of business that we work with. It also lends to better quality management decisions with the, the kind of information you get. Do you find that when you engage a seller that they are basically they've hit their breaking point and they're just ready to be out after however many years and mm -hmm. they just don't have the patience to go down that road of another 24, 36 months? That's, that's absolutely the case. And normally they've had an epiphany of some sort. Somebody's died. There's been a health concern. There's stresses in the market. The economy's up and down. Like right now, you know, they did, oh, God, we did that in 08. You know, now you know, we're going to do it again. I don't want to wait another five years. They're tired and they're ready, you know, especially our target market, which are, as you said at the outset, are baby boomers. Typically, they've been through this, this cycle before. And uh, when they're ready to sell, they're ready to sell. It's challenging because you can't, you wish you could get them three to five years earlier, but by that time, they don't have the epiphany that they might want to sell because as we both know, everyone exits their business. They either die at their desk or they sell. Mm -hmm. uh, and no You're one really transition one way or another. Right. No one really wants to die at their desk. Most people don't at least. Some people do. But it's like they don't want to think about it five years ago. But now they don't want to think about it. They just want to do it. And it's like mm -hmm. if you just took the time, you know, a multiple, those numbers get big quick when you're talking 20 to $100 million. Absolutely. The nice thing is, quite frankly, it's a in my my experience over 25 years of investment banking, it's easier to improve the multiple over that two year, three year, five year period of run up than it is to create new sales and new margins capabilities. So even if your sales and your profits stay the same over the next two years, you know, if this economy right now is a little you know uncertain, but you can improve the multiple, uh, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's interesting. So besides the fact that most owners don't realize how intrusive of a process a transaction is with the due diligence done by a buyer, what are the biggest misconceptions you think sellers have? I think that, well, number one, I think most of our clients believe they know who the buyer is going to be. It's going to be ABC company down the street next, you know, in the Washington state or in somewhere else in the country, My they're sure basically. that that's going to be the buyer. And it rarely is the case because quite often those those potential buyers are also owned by baby boomers and they're not in the mood to make acquisitions. And so through a lot of the research we do, we find, uh, a, you know, define a universe of buyers that we, we come up with that ends up building that competition and ends up hopefully getting a, a much better price for, uh, for, for the, the client. What do you see in the businesses you sell in the twenty to one hundred million dollar range? Are they typically single owner? Is it is it typically are there partners involved? Typically, what do you see? Say probably eighty percent of our businesses are that we sell are family owned, first generation, maybe second generation family owned. The the rest would have a couple partners generally that may have started the business together years ago, but by and large they are in the British Columbia market. It's a lot of our clients have had one business their whole lives. They've they've built it. They've you know kind of expanded geographically, expanded product offering. But they tend to be single owner. Uh, the ones that well, right now we've got a couple of cases with uh, multiple owners, and things like shareholder agreements and you know buy sell type agreements. And they don't have those in place. And so no one ever has a buy sell in place, and then no. they do. It's never funded. 
Yes. And then, you know, when you've got one side that wants to sell, they've had the epiphany, the other side hasn't, you have a real challenge uh, on your hands if there's no mechanism to to. So when you have a family business, what kind of internal dynamics do you see? Because if they're dealing with you, it's not an, it's not an internal transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of a dyna- family dynamics are at play? Generally, what we find in the industrial space, the kids have maybe not taken as much interest in the business to begin with. So that's number one. There's not as often. Which uh, is a mistake. See, yes. Oh, I know. You know, they want to rather work downtown and, you know, for somebody else rather than. <laughs> you're right. It's absolutely a mistake. But that seems to be happening more and more. And number two, the businesses we sell tend to be larger. And so for a child to come in and buy a 50, 70, 80 million dollar business is very difficult without financial help. So what we try to do is if the children are interested to stay in, we try to have them stay in with a a buyer. And that tends to dictate the type of buyer we'll bring into the process. It's probably not a strategic buyer that's going to want to buy 100%. It's going to be a private equity firm or a private equity backed corporate business that really wants to see those kids uh, do well in the business. What do you see as the challenges when there's multiple partners? Well, it's all about communication. And what we try to do is we rep- we need to represent all parties. We can't represent one half of the shareholder group and have the other half represented by somebody else. So we we tend to, we'll always want to represent the shareholders in general in a transaction. And we want to make sure there's lots of clear communication throughout the process. And sometimes there's a divergence in the middle of a transaction. And so we spend a lot of time trying to bring our client side together. As much as we're negotiating with the other side, we're also negotiating internally to keep things on track. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, I mean... There's a few bruises from those experiences. Yeah, I I mean, communication or the lack of it is typically typically the mother of all conflict. And so... If you've got partners, and especially if they're if they're not ma- if they're not related, even if they are related, but then you have spouses, mm-hmm. um, it definitely I, I'm sure it can get interesting quickly. Yes, and the best thing that can happen for us on a transaction is where if the spouse is brought into those discussions, and generally we see that our clients keep the spouses sort of on the sidelines throughout most of the discussions and negotiation. But when they bring them in, that's a magical moment. That means now we're really committed to getting this deal done. Up until then, you know, it's they may be intellectually involved in the sale, but they haven't emotionally thought about that next phase in their lives uh, post-transition. So when the spouses are, are kind of copied or they're on end up on a Zoom meeting, you know that we're now you know, we've made a big, uh, we've changed gears towards getting things uh, completed. So what advice would you give to somebody who is a really successful business owner, probably falls in that 20 to $100 million, they may not even know what their business is worth, but they're really successful. And, you know, they're probably 55 to 65 years old. What would you, what advice would you give them? You know, I think talk to, you know, advisors like yourself or myself and understand what needs to be put in place to to not only get maximized value, maximized value, that's obviously, that's sort of the de minimis requirement of getting a deal done. But it's all the other stuff that you want to get well, done. You want to go like, smoothly. It's like, yeah, if you sell your business for $20 million, you got to pay the tax man. And can you live on the rest? Yeah. And if the answer is no, maybe you shouldn't sell your business or grow it or you can sell it for another amount. Or, you know, you're 
a 70 year old, 75 year old business owner and you don't have a management team in place. So you can sell for that 20 million, but they want you to roll forward 25, 35, 40% of the business for five years. Well, that's no good either. So putting the people in place, having retention bonuses in place or retention agreements in place with your management team are really critically important. You know, I, I tell people, get out of being an, like to some entrepreneurs, it'll sound offensive, but stop being an entrepreneur and start being an owner. You know, the entrepreneur is the one that's deeply ingrained in the business day to day. Think like an owner, like a shareholder and put the, the pieces in place. The more you do that, the easier it's going to be to extricate yourself at the end of a transaction, maximize value. And even if you have to incentivize those managers with pretty significant bonuses, you're going to do much better at the end of the day. That's key. I mean, so how often do you do you see business owners, they really haven't done the math probably before mm-hmm. they talk to you about, well, I'm going to sell my business for $30 million. Well, here's what that actually means for you, Mr. Business Owner, because there's transaction costs. There's um, There might be a holdback. There's taxes. Yeah, um, legal accounting, everything else. Right. So here's what you're actually going to walk away with. And based on these assumptions, this is how much income that's going to be a year. How many people, when you talk to them, when they have that conversation, they're like, wow, that's not as much as I thought. Yeah, we have that. You know what I've learned and I I didn't do this early on in my career in investment banking. We've learned to do a proceeds analysis before we even get into a transaction. So we want to be aligned with the client that if they think their business is worth 20, we'll do the math ourselves from our experience and the research we'll do. We'll look at comparable transactions. We'll we'll understand a bit more of the market. We'll say, okay, this is the market says it's 30. You think it's 30. We're we're aligned. You may think it's 40, but here's why we think it's 30. And if they decide to go forward and 30 is still okay, we will then also provide a proceeds analysis. They'll know what our fee are, fees are, but there is tax. There's tax advisors. There's accountants. There's other expenses along the way. And then when we have offers, we'll do a side-by-side of multiple offers and say, well, this one is 100% at 30. This is only, they want, they'll pay you 35, but you, they want you to roll 40% or 30%. You know, do you want to wait? How how you know how confident are you on that future upside? Yeah. And you know, just a quick point, Ross, that when I'm on the sell side, I want my clients to get paid right away. Uh, if I'm on the buy side, I want earnouts, contingent payments, rolled equity, keep them tied to the desk as long as possible. And I found over 25 years, the contingent payments rarely benefit the seller. Well, really benefit them as much as they think they will. Well, so, there's always a lot of uh, what I like to call rainbows, unicorns, and fairy dust on those on those holdbacks and the roll-ups that they're, that's always allegedly going to happen at these amazing multiples. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, I wouldn't hold my breath on those. Yeah. When the buyers, though, tie the performance to your own budgets, though, you better make sure your budgets are are pretty uh, pretty solid. Absolutely. Um, so, Ian, if someone's listening to this podcast and they want to get in touch with you, how would they get in touch with you? Well, it's uh, tapartners.ca. So being Canadian, we've got a, a .ca. I've also, we haven't even talked about this, but I've actually launched a course online that actually shows entrepreneurs how to to build that value over the next oh, uh, that's few fan- years. That, that's so, fantastic. How do um, they get to the course? Yeah. Well, the course is on... I'll, I, <laughs> I don't have the URL, uh, you know, on the top of my mind, but I can- we will put the URL in the show notes for sure. But I'm sure it's probably going to be available off of the company website, correct? Yes. 
Yeah, we've literally, it's just been launched in the last week or two or last couple of weeks. So um, that's, I've got to get the team to to put it, put it up online, but it's on my U, or YouTube and my LinkedIn channel as well. People can, I'm a power user of LinkedIn, so anybody can reach me on LinkedIn uh, as well. So that's, um, and I post every Thursday on some transition topics to help uh, entrepreneurs. That's great. And it's tapartners.ca? Yes. Well, Ian, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Hey, well, Ross, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. So very much appreciated. Awesome. You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Paz, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and material are provided for your convenience in locating related information services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, final representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York, PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032, California Insurance License 0L100732022-143601, expires 924.